Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. This is going to be just a fun, really loose one. We're going to get probably a lot of laughing in here, a lot of inside jokes that I'm probably not even going to get, but are going to be fun to listen to. I'm thrilled to welcome back two previous guests. First off, we've got Monique Houston from Winebow, and then, of course, Lauren Patz from Redwood Empire. Monique, Lauren, thank you so much for coming back on, for Thanks, venturing David. back on. Yeah, no, I think we're all kind of excited to have this conversation. So looking forward to it. Awesome. So the general topic for tonight is tasting panels, including in that award shows, numbers on on neck tags and all the other medals and things that we can see on bottles and all that. So we're going to keep it loose, though. So just starting off, let's start off with what are the best and the worst? That you've experienced cool. like the best spirits or like the best uh <laughs> execution uh, of a judging or <laughs> let, let's say the let's say like the but i know that was a deep end throw uh let's say the a competition where you felt like it was just organized the best and run the best and uh you know you can either tell the worst or we'll bleep out the name or or avoid it if you'd like. I mean, maybe a side tangent on that conversation. I was thinking about what I thought made for the best experience and the best results. And the truth for me is really in the stewardship. So uh, the um, organization of uh, the timing and in what order we're tasting and judging, for me, that hugely impacts uh, how well judges are able to execute their role. So having a really good steward, having somebody there who they essentially taste through everything and put it in the correct order of which to taste, um, especially with things like gin <laughs> or, you know, maybe slightly stronger flavored uh, spirits and liqueurs, um, that has always uh, had a huge impact on my ability to be a good judge. I 100% agree. There's so many unsung heroes and it's the back room. And, and, and to Lauren's point, they have to come in a few days early, inventory everything in, taste every single thing. Does it fit with what it says on the label? Sometimes it does like, oh, this is this. No, I think we actually need to put it over here, you know, whatever it is, and then flight it. And sometimes it's not naturally what you would think of outside looking in or the nose or again, like what it says on the label, you know, is something highest proof best at the end or something super peated or smoky or hopped or like where the botanicals are particularly strong. You have to be able to like let all those things shine and a really good backroom stewards people who are keeping it flowing, nothing's worse than you're sitting at a table, just like waiting and waiting and waiting and bullshitting, waiting for the next <laughs> flight to come out. So, I mean, those are, those are really the unsung heroes. And two, I've said this before, there's some like really strong industry people, strong palates in those back rooms where I'm like, you should be on the panel. Like you're better suited to judge this than I am. And they're like, A, no, I don't want to taste through all these things and score and write criticism. You know, at B, they're like, I want to know what everything is while I'm tasting it. There are some people that are just like great at tasting, great at writing tasting notes, but like they don't like the blind aspect of it. 
So there's some really good palates in the back room of a great tasting. Yeah, I mean, it makes a huge dif dif uh, difference when you're tasting through like 10 different blueberry gins or blueberry vodkas. And, you know, one's got sugar, one's got like 100 and whatever proof, you know what I mean? Like it makes a huge difference in which order you're tasting those, whether or not you're going to be able to, uh, to appreciate each one individually, or at least give it the time and attention it deserves when it's submitted uh, as, uh, as something to be judged. I think too, Lauren, I, I mean, I would never name like worst experiences. We can talk about best, you know, tasting experiences, but I will, one of them, I won't name it. Actually, I can't even remember what the name of it was, but there were these folks that put on a competition where they were like, we're tired of everybody putting all the bourbons together and all the rye's together. They're like, we're just going to mix it up. And it was like, if they put all the whiskey entrance into a hat mm -hmm. and drew them out. And so you would get a flight of six that legitimately started with cast strength Lafroig and then went to like Jim Beam and then went, you know, and they were like, we're just tired of the old school way of doing things and we're going to mix it up. I was like, this is terrible. Like, I mean, it's just, it would be so jarring on your palate. I mean, really, could you, when in a real world circumstance, you know, would you do that for, for like tasting and, you know, an intellectual engagement type purpose? You know, it would just, it doesn't seem realistic but I, I like, I mean, it's definitely mixing things up. I mean, I'm sure they got some crazy results off of that judging. <laughs> I mean, even in the real world, if you're doing like an all peat flight, you'd put Lafroig at the end. You or know what? Lafroig or Octomore. Though, it depends because peat fades as whiskey's age. So if it was a 30 year old Lafroig versus yeah. an eight year old, yeah. if it was castoring versus 40, you know, so, and I mean, these are blind, blind, blind. Like we, you know, we get, that's an, like kind of an interesting piece too, is like what is shared with you, mm -hmm. you know? So you'll get mm -hmm. something like these are bourbons one to two years old, 40 to 46%, you know, something like that. And then, you know, you might have a similar flight, but they're all finishes. Well, it matters like what order the finishes are in, you know, it's just like all the flighting is, is, is super crazy important, but you know, there are times that in a panel, you might taste something and go, this is finished. This is finished in Sherry. It has to be like, why is it in this, this, um, you know, this, um, group of just regular bourbons. And you'll say, well, so we'll literally grab a steward and say, can you go back, pick up the bottle, look at it. And it'll be like somewhere in the fine print finished in mm -hmm. Sherry why was that not on the front of the bottle that should have been in the finished category it would right. fare better to a um consumer in the finished category you know if somebody who just likes everyday bourbon buys a bottle of this they might not like it because it clearly tastes like oloroso sherry so it's like overall sometimes that's like good feedback to be able to give the person bottling it yeah one of the most notorious categories for that specific issue is gin um <clears throat> gin i think is one of those spirits that has such an interesting breakdown within itself for categorization. And um, so of course there's classic, there's contemporary, there's barrel age, there's Navy strains, there's all kinds of different subcategories within gin. And, um, and so, you know, not all um, submissions for judging break it down uh, in that way. But you do get some really good feedback, particularly between like a classic versus a contemporary. I find that that is often something difficult because uh, it comes from sometimes a marketing perspective of saying the word classic style gin um, when really it's a contemporary gin, like pretty clearly not a classic gin. 
Um, so I'd say gin is probably the category that has the most fun when it comes to like trying to figure out uh, what definition of itself it's really representing. And I should jump in and say, you know, you both have uh, extensive experience on tasting panel. That's why this conversation came about. It was talking to both you and the topic came up in both conversations. Uh, and with that, I think I'm going to actually go to plan B and I'm going to. Oh, yep. So far off track. No, 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 it was, it's good. I promise it's going to work really well. So um, instead of the, instead of version A, version B is going to be, we're going to walk through all these things, but we're going to do it as if you're both creating your own panel slash awards. So cool. we're going to start with what are, like when you're planning this, what are the first controls you want to put in place? Well, the first thing I would make sure that Monique was going to be one of my judges. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> uh, I think, oh my gosh. It, honestly, at the very, very top, figuring out how difficult it is to get all of these crazy spirits into the place that you want them to be tasted. So every state in the United States operates like a different country. And there are states that require like a letter of, a, you know, like a letter for every single spirit that comes in legally to cross those state lines. There are people that will do competitions in places where like, oh, I can't suddenly get the paperwork for these 800 things done in like the next 30 days. Like that's not going to work out so good. It causes a lot of stress. It means that you're super limited sometimes on like what you can taste. So it's like, you know, you need some mobbed up city like Chicago. This is a great place to hold a tasting because you can get away with anything. Um, so I would, I definitely start there. That's an excellent suggestion. Yeah, I think sometimes the complexities with the logistics can be um, uh, overlooked because of the excitement around what it actually is, which is, you know, drinking spirits and <laughs> giving feedback and having uh, really interesting uh, and in-depth uh, conversations with your peers about, you know, the trajectory of the spirits industry, which is truly what I believe the value of, uh, of spirit judging is, which is kind of giving some guardrails, some guidance as to, you know, as professionals who have, you know, experience and appreciation for, you know, the craft of, uh, of spirit production and consumption, uh, you know, giving some of that expertise to everyone else through, uh, you know, giving, <laughs> assigning value to, to different spirits and things like that. But the logistics are significant. I mean, <laughs> it's so difficult with that three-tier system. And as Monique was saying, each individual state has its own set of requirements that need to be fulfilled. So yeah, I mean, step one, I guess, would be where's it going to be? <laughs> and uh, how easy is it going to be to uh, uh, execute? Because I'll tell you right now, it won't be difficult to find people to, uh, to taste for you. That's, that shouldn't be the, the difficult part. Yeah, I think too, you know, then, you know, to me, one of the things that I feel like is a miss on a lot of panels and, and, I, and it's just a lot of people just maybe don't know the right people, but I mean, you've got like a range of panels that will go from this, you know, different levels of experts that'll have lots of like bartender focus or lots of writers that are focused or lots of producers that are focused, retailers, whatever it is. But there's also competitions that are like the housewives of New Jersey, 
Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, those are real things and they're really, will reach out to get free spirits from anybody and say, we're going to judge your spirits, you know, like in Patty's garage next Tuesday, we're going to score your vodka. Like, you know, maybe not the best. I mean, unless you're like their neighbor, maybe you don't really care about what they think, but a really, to me, a really great judging panel. And I've been super blessed to either sit on some of them with Lauren or, or near Lauren, where I can hear what Lauren has to say, because I really tune in when we're fortunate to have a distiller on the panel. To have a distiller on the panel means, though, that they have to recuse themselves from judging, obviously, their own spirits. And largely, those distillers will not have entered spirits into that competition at all. So, you know, like that can kind of cause, you know, but to me, the 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 kind of, I don't want to say like perfect, but I like to have five people on a panel. That's just like a good number for me. I like to have a distiller, like a very talented distiller. I like to have some kind of writer, you know, author, kind of industry person, somebody from retail somebody from like a strong bartender, somebody who knows what it would do, you know, in a cocktail, um, you know, just like a good mix. And then somebody kind of my tier, like distributor, like I'm seeing everything from everybody all the time. I could get like an off flavor in something, but I can't identify where it came from. Like, I can't remember. I don't do that stuff every day. Like Lauren does. So if I'm like, oh, I'm getting that kind of baby sick note, which crazily isn't always a bad thing. (laughs) So, you know, I could say, okay, I'm getting this. And if you've got Lauren right there, Lauren's like, oh, this was a hot fermentation, you know, da, 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 this is what happened. You can actually then give constructive feedback to people that want to read your notes and actually make changes, you know? So it's like, at the end of the day, is that spirit going to score? Well, maybe not, but is that the ultimate thing that that producer wants is a 99 point score or do they want, you're doing good here's how you can improve. Here's how you can get more consistent. So I like like a well-rounded panel, um, I think is, is very crucial. I mean, and from a, a slightly more selfish uh, viewpoint, I found it extremely helpful in kind of building my own appreciation and vision for uh, our industry by being on diverse panels, because you know, when you work in a very tight lane as a distiller, you're like, I'm producing things. I'm focused on what I'm doing. I have this very specific vision that I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, and you really have to stay, you know, strong and true to that vision in order to uh, get to the end of the road there. But, uh, you know, it might not be something anyone is interested in <laughs> or like might not know what to do uh, with or just like, it gives that opportunity to gain perspective was invaluable to me. Um, I actually started judging only a few years after I became, you know, a distiller and it was so formative in um, kind of like my professional career that I just, I couldn't, I, I can only imagine what it would be like for, you know, receiving the results off of that. It felt like I was receiving critique on my own uh, viewpoint of what I, what my role was. Um, within our community. So it was really valuable. I still remember, you know, some of my first experiences where I get checked pretty hard (laughs) by a bartender or something like that. They're like, yeah, it's good. But like, what would you do with this? And I'm like, oh, I never would have even thought of that. (laughs) You don't just always drink spirits straight. I totally forgot. Like, Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, it's really valuable and the spirits, they just gain uh, a lot more by having people kind of speak to it from different angles uh, and different areas within the industry. That being said, this whole, you know, housewives uh, thing that you're talking about for judging, 
I also love that because it's for a specific customer. Do you know what I mean? If you identify as, you know, that person and you're like, clearly my people love this, you know what I mean? So it's just, it can feel like, uh, you know, getting a different level of ownership over a product that way. And so I kind of like this uh, idea of uh, really embracing who your judging set is and like who uh, they're curating for, you know, and like, what is the purpose of this judging? What is the intention? What is the goal other than just giving it a score? Like, what are you trying to do with the results of your judging? I think is a really key thing to define uh, when putting stuff together. And that was going to be my next question is who is this, who's this panel for? It, it's so know, interesting it's, too, because if you're Diageo, Pernod, Bacardi, these guys are not looking for us to give them constructive criticism. They're like, we right. know what we're doing. We're Diageo. It's like, but we want a score. And they probably, I don't know if concern is the right word. They probably do care about how they perform against their peer group set. Mm -hmm. It's also very often about getting in front of just those judges. So if you're looking at like ultimate spirits, like Paul Packle's panel and some of the top, you know, Dale DeGroff and like these guys, they're like, oh, I just want to make sure that that very influential human being tastes my stuff. So I, it's such a valid question, David. I love that. It's like seeing, I guess this is more for the wine people, but um, like seeing James Suckling, his name on a wine label and saying, okay, he likes this. So it must be. It must be so good. Uh, so, but for so there, there's clearly a divide there. There's people who, and and this is from the perspective of a judge. So, there's the divide between wanting to give the constructive criticism or even positive notes on, like completely positive notes on something, but also wanting to give a score or some kind of indication of rank that someone's going to throw in a neck tag. Someone's going to someone going to a liquor store is going to race through the aisles and see those 200 bottles on the shelf and be like, oh, that one got a 92. Perfect. That'll be fine for tonight. So trying to appease both sides of that at the same time. So Lauren, you went a little bit into how, how you would approach that. So Monique, how would you approach trying to appease both ends of that spectrum? Or would you? It's interesting. We don't get um, typical, typical competitions. They don't put price in front of you. I think that's always kind of an interesting thing is like a score kind of price value perception, you know? So it's like, it could be 99 points, but if it's like one of 300 bottles, it costs $5,000 and I'm never going to get it. Like, what do I care? If it costs $5,000, it better get 99 points, you know, from somebody. But, mm -hmm. you know, if there was something where there was like a 90 some point score from whomever, and it was like 20 bucks and I was like, Oh, I'll try it. Like these people liked it. Like I, you know, I kind of like playing around, you know, with that and like kind of being additive in terms of perceived value. I don't know. I'm so used to the audience for most of the competitions that I judge for is the producers is to go back to the producers and say, this was great. You did well amongst your peers. You know, it's interesting, even just in like a deck, just over a decade now with ADI, so American Distilling Institute, it's largely American artisanal spirits. The floor for these spirits has come up so far. I mean, when we first started, when Lauren and I first started judging these, there was stuff that you were like, the scales essentially for most of these is like 60 to hundred. It's like elementary school. Like right. nobody's getting like below, you know, whatever. So if you're at like, below 80, you, you know, we're kind of at the point where we're like, you shouldn't have put this in the bottle. 
And that's, you don't really say that to someone, but like, why, you know, what was faulted about it, you know, whatever it is. But now when we go into panels, you're seeing nothing really gets below 70, very few things probably get below 80. And then, you know, it starts to, you know, so it's just, it's been really fun to see producers take the feedback in, in tow and like be able to kind of continue to raise level. We've also seen some producers get very creative, like it costs money to get a certificate of label approval and like register with different states. Um, at one point, a distiller that I will not name, but one that makes a lot of hopped and smoked things, many, many, many of them, probably more than any other American producer. I believe they entered over 20 different peated or peated hopped spirits. And it was like specific. It was like mosaic this and this citra this and da da da. And it's like, you can't even taste all 20 of them in a flight. That was like four right. flights. And it was, it was terrible. I mean, your palate is just fried and like whoop, all the liquids gone out of your mouth. But what we found out later was they only wanted to release one. Well, let's let these folks decide which one the one is. Mm-hmm. So they put all these samples in front of a couple different tables of people that had a level of expertise to, and it kind of like, oh, everybody like glommed towards this one. Cool. That's the one that we're going to spend the money to get the label market and put out in front of people. Yeah. So in that, in, in that case though, and I have to say, I might've loved that because I, I'm a hoppy bastard. So um, I like a piney, hoppy, dry, all that stuff. Uh, but would it have made a difference for you if instead of that company putting in 20, let's say, as in 20 different styles, instead they had narrowed it down to like five to seven and say, these are the ones that we think are the best of them. And then, and then give it to a panel to decide from that rather than casting the widest net possible. I mean, if they really feel like they don't know, you know what I mean? Like then they should submit them all. I mean, what is it, what's the cost of a consultant versus the entry cost of a, of a spirit? I mean, you get, however, you know, five people uh, giving you back feedback for 20 different spirits. I mean, because look at what that would cost uh, and think about it that way. Some of them were also costing, I mean, between three and $500 an entry. Yeah. So that's I mean, for 20 is $40,000. No, $10,000. Sorry for 20 entries at the highest rate. That's crazy. But wow. just, just, just to, to throw spaghetti against the different wall. consultants for tasting through. I mean, I don't know. I, I bet they're yeah. pretty comparable <laughs> in terms of pricing and a lot less uh, effort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, so, I mean, I guess just like the audience can vary so widely, you know, so when you get it's interesting. I don't really know. I should look this up. The history of the San Francisco Wine and Spirits Competition, which I just feel like a lot to a lot of people, it's kind of the oldest and like, therefore mm-hmm. meaningful. Um, but, you know, it's like at some point in time when 95% of things entered metal, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. really matters, the audience there is like we and, and people will just straight up say you want a 90 plus point score enter into this. You're a first time spirits producer getting in the market in 2023, send it over there because you'll probably get over 90 points. The general consumer doesn't know that, but that's basically like a guaranteed score. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I was mentioning before we started. Right. right. It's like, this is drinkable. Won't, exactly. won't kill you. <laughs> you, you will not go blind from drinking this whiskey. And that's the best thing we can say about it. Um, but, I mentioned uh, before we started recording that I just listened to a three-part series from Whiskey Tangent 
uh, for listeners, definitely suggest reading, reading, no, listening through that. I haven't even had any whiskey. Uh, <laughs> so listen through that because it's, it kind of dovetails with this, but they were saying, I think it was San Francisco that they had something like 4,000 entries and 80% plus meddled in some way. So even for in-industry people, that's got to be maddening to a certain extent. Because you're like, what's the, what's the point then? And you can you could say you meddled if you got a bronze when a bronze might not be looked at so positively in industry, but as soon as you put a medal on a label, then it's like, ooh, you know, it's like the Olympics. So sorry, Lauren, cut you off. Well, no, I mean, I think it's a conversation I've had with a couple of people. And I have, you know, as a producer, I'm like, if it's a bronze, like I don't care. Like <laughs> I only care if it gets a gold medal when I'm receiving it. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I I think but one of the responses back to me was like, it's supposed to show uh, encouragement and validation for what you have created for like what is in the bottle uh, currently. And um, I think, I think that there's still, I think it's still important. It doesn't bother me that a whole bunch of stuff metals. I wish that people under like knew about that, about different, judge uh judging competitions and like read up on the judging competition i know that's not going to happen but like that would be my ideal world when i look at a score i'm like what is that judging competition i look it up i look who the judges are and then i get a better idea of what to uh expect or uh of how important that is going to be to me that number (laughs) but i realized that that's just not the norm and that's a lot of effort for someone to be putting in when Truly, it's supposed to be taking effort away from you from having to taste through a whole bunch of different things and finding out for yourself whether or not it resonates. So it's a complicated question. I We had similar uh, conversations about some of the judgings that I've been on about, you know, when, is it important to give a medal or is it important to kind of maintain the quote unquote integrity of the judging by uh, you know, allowing for room to be taken to enhance products. And uh, I don't think that we came to a very clear answer (laughs) in that conversation, but it's still ongoing. And uh, I think eventually we'll get to a point where, you know, everyone's on board with whatever that decision is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We also get to the point sometimes where it's like people are on the borderline and, and you might like decide all your scores individually. And then you're kind of chatting around the table afterwards and like, oh, you know what? I didn't notice that. Or yeah, when I added a little bit of water, it was that. Or, oh, I didn't really think about that perspective. Or like Lauren will say, man, that's a really hard flavor to develop. It might not be something you like, but I know how challenging that is. And so it might be like 89, you know, okay, that's not gold. But then we might go, it deserves a gold. That was like extra. That was work. And so they'll still see the scores but then be like, oh, they gave me a gold medal because I deserved it because I put in this extra effort. So it's it's nice when there are ones that aren't just scores, I think, and you really can give feedback and and um, be more conversant. I know it is kind of one-sided, but like be a little bit more conversant. Yeah, I, I think one of the important things, at least on all of the, the judging that I've been on is the debate portion of the judging. You Lauren know- loves a debate. I can hear Lauren a whole room away. I feel very passionately about, <laughs> about the work 
that uh, that not only myself, the other judges, but also the producers are putting into it, that I think it deserves, you know, some uh, some attention and some intense <laughs> dialogue. I've definitely, literally from a room away, heard an emphatic Lauren Pats. No, you guys don't <laughs> understand. Like, this is this. And people are like, okay, Lauren. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't doubt that that's to be true. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, just as Monique was saying, that perspective, uh, it, it does kind of help you uh, give a give or take a little bit more in your own uh, scoring for spirits when you hear why, the, the reasoning behind um, the, re the, the judging for what it is. So I really love it when the notes are required. You know, some judging are purely, you just are either checking boxes or writing um, the number and you're not really giving any explanation as to why. And I, I think that that loses something not only for the person receiving the, uh, that number, but also for the judges, you know what I mean? It's kind of like you're a check on each other. Uh, about where your palate's at, where, you know, your thought process is, like, just overall. So, um, it can get, uh, <laughs> it depends on who's sitting at a table with you. Uh, but, but in particular, if there are two people within the same realm, like if there are two bartenders, or if there are two distillers, or, you know what I mean, it can get even more uh, heated, I would say. Because then you're coming from this place of like, well, I know my space, I know my like niche or whatever. And so I have to be like, that's my role, that's my job. I got to fight for it, you know? I, I totally get that. And uh, for what it's worth on, if I were creating one of these uh, awards, I'd have to require notes. Like notes have to be required. <clears throat> and I am not sure if I would make the... the you know who the notes came from public necessarily because don't you know, do that. yeah you don't want you don't want <laughs> no we won't be as honest yeah right right well, but, i just yeah, wouldn't be the, the judging i'd be like right. what <laughs> right. never mind but i do like the idea one that the notes should be at least in a one-way uh one-way conversation that way but also to allow uh somehow for the producer to respond so it's like, let's say there was a note in there that, um, you know, Monique, you found to be something that made them deserve gold, even though they had a score in the 80s. But Lauren, you taste that and you're like, either I don't get that note or, you know, as a distiller, I don't think that's a good note. Like that's an accident that mm -hmm. probably won't happen again or shouldn't happen again. Um, so in that case, you know, the producer gets to say, oh, yeah, I was aiming for that or I was trying to get that note across in a way that they maybe can't do by just sending in a bottle. And it, that gets to a question of how do you evaluate, if you can, intentionality in something? There's words on a label. Yeah. Tell you on the front label that tell you yeah. what is in there. So it's <laughs> like, if it's meant to be banana split flavored whiskey okay like what does banana split mean to me okay do i get all those notes in this plot and so we might get a flight that's like flavored whiskeys so it's like well no the intention on the front of the bottle is this is peanut butter this is hazelnut this is banana split this is this well if i don't get it 
okay, then that, you know, you've tasted your own, you're high on your own supply. You've tasted it so many times that like, you can't even tell that this isn't that obvious, but you'll also taste things where you're like, they didn't even put on there that this was this, that it was flavored, that it was again, hopped, that it was peated, that it was smoked, that it was this. And it's like, that's nowhere on the bottle. So then you did a thing and you didn't even mention that you did the thing, but I mean, like you, what proof you bottle your whiskey at. Okay. So it could be like 60% alcohol. You put it in the bottle that way. So someone's going to trust that you, as the person that made it, think that this is the way that it should be consumed. If I add a third water and I go, oh, this is super good at 40%. How do I score that? You intentionally put it in the bottle at 60% and it was too hot and I couldn't drink it and like, da, 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 you know? So am I like, well, at this percentage, it's an 80, but let me just tell you, if you cut it a full third with water, it would be a 95, you know? So there's like, there, there's intentionality to what you choose to put through your certificate of label approval. I know Lauren knows way more about that piece than I do. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it, it would be a sacrifice between a blind tasting and one based off of what the intentionality would be, right? The more information you have, the better you can judge it against what the intention was, but the less you'll be able to make, you know, a potentially non-biased judgment of what the, the spirits are. Um, so we do get a little bit of information of what's on the label, but certainly not all the information uh, about what's on the label. So when I approach spirits that are put in front of me for judging, I have to believe that what is in front of me is what was intended. And then I judge based off of whether that intention was a good one. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, I think it's spot on, Lauren. I judged a very venerable bourbon industry person and he's a lovely human being and I value him and his friendship and his opinions but he's so commercial facing brand facing bartender facing like sell 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 we would taste things and go this is fundamentally just not very good and he'd go but this would be great in an old-fashioned okay but but it's not it's not a bottled old-fashioned it's not in an old-fashioned like I understand what you're saying, but the intention was that it is consumed as it stands in this bottle. And so he was skewing all of our scores. He'd be like 15 every round, like 15 points higher than all the rest of us. And we were just like, oh, dude, these are not all gold medal winning whiskeys. Like, I get it. And you're being really kind. But the intention is what they put in the bottle. Yeah. I mean, you just have to go based off of what's in front of you. I, I think that's my belief. And, uh, you know, the other, the other option is true. There have been times when I've been sitting on a panel of judges and, and they're giving it, they're giving spirits very, very low, low scores. And I'm like, I'm, you know, trying to figure out why, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's wrong with this? What is it? What is it? And they're just kind of like, well, it's, you know, it's okay. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's fine, but it doesn't deserve like a, like a faulty if it's if it's okay you know what I'm saying so it's it's really interesting I'd say it takes at least a, a flight or two to dial in your group you know what I mean I think Monique and I have both also both been anchor judges before so usually there's someone kind of like leading the charge for um, the sitting group of judges and recording uh, you know certain bits of information and things like that and uh, part of that is to try and um, pull out a little bit more of this conversation, a little bit more of that maybe debate. 
uh, and uh, really get to the heart of what we're trying to uh, to achieve there. And I'd say it takes a little bit. It takes a, a little bit of time to kind of get everybody, you know, working towards the same goal. Um, and uh, once you've got that, it, it you it it's shocking sometimes how close your scores can be. You know, everybody within very very tight, and then every once in a while there's a there's an outlier. I've been that person a couple of times, <laughs> but you know, once you get dialed in, it's true. You can get pretty tight uh, with your judging. And that's, I think that's kind of some of the most magical stuff. It's, it's certainly validating as a judge, <laughs> but also just like uh, how much people understand, you know, what it is that they're tasting and what they're trying to achieve. I want to jump back uh, to uh, the, the example Monique you gave of, of someone who said, well, this would be really great in a cocktail. Now, I'm an outside reviewer. I've never been on a panel. I hope to get there one day to, to be on panels and tasting things. But today I try things in a Glencairn glass. And we'll get to that in a second too. But a Glencairn glass, a water dropper, if I need it, and like regular water, not uh, deionized and all this stuff. But it's pretty open. You know, it's not a ton of controls. So like I said, I'm tasting something and I'm thinking, okay, this is how they wanted it. You know, how it is in the bottle is how it is. If I write as a reviewer, like just an online blogger reviewer, this whiskey would go great in a cocktail. That is almost universally seen as, well, it's probably not good to drink it on its own. And so in the situation you're describing where this person was like, oh, but this deserves a higher score because of that. That's a totally different take on it than uh, a different community of reviewers is going to, to take on that. It's really fair because also, and even just me, I don't sit around and just like drink a million drams out of a Glen Cairn glass and write nose and palate and finish tasting. It's like, that's not fun. And I'll tell you when you're judging, you can't shut it off. You get to like dinner and you're breaking down dinner and you're breaking down the wine and you have to be like, oh my God, you guys enjoy a meal. Like, let's chill out. Like you can't <laughs> stop doing it. But that isn't the way 99% of the world consumes. Mm -hmm. They do drink it with water on the rocks in a cocktail. That's, I mean, David, it's such a good point. That is entirely fair. And frankly, a really good idea to expand into panels would be like, people should have flights of things entered into what makes the best old fashioned, what makes the best gin and tonic versus a Vesper versus a dry martini. Like that's honestly really innovative. And that's a really, really good idea. We'll add that category to, to yeah. this uh, thing we're creating right I now. I love that. Like, tick a box. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I love your whiskey. Okay, maybe your whiskey, like, on its face, to your point. If, if something's crazy low proof, crazy low proof, something's 80 proof. Like, am I like, <laughs> oh. Crazy low proof. <laughs> I know. I mean, are me and Lauren like, hmm, great sipper. Like, let's drink on this every day. No, but, like, would it maybe be great in a cocktail? It's got really nice, like, orange and cherry notes. Like, would it be great in an old-fashioned? If somebody ticked a box and said, I'd love this to be measured in a group of its peers in a bunch of old fashions. That's honestly a really brilliant idea. Yeah. I also think it kind of largely is impacted by what the spirit is. You know, I, I, going back to gin, I, I, this was, a, again, it's kind of like an eye-opening moment for me as a distiller because I do drink straight gin. Like I will just drink a glass of gin. Uh, me too. <laughs> but I, but I, went into this judging and I was like, oh, I really, I really appreciate what they've done with the harmony of these botanicals and blah, 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 blah. And uh, there was a, a bartender there and uh, she was basically like, yeah, but what am I going to do with this? 
like this can't be put into a martini it can't be put into a gin and tonic so like what is is this even gin like is this even a good gin because if you can't make those two cocktails with gin what is even the point you know and i was like like a a super savory and people are like in a negroni no in a like no yeah what do you i love savory you know what i mean like i'm an aquavit fanatic i want to put all the salt in i just like one you know sour bitter and uh savory and so i really it it can't be about what your personal preference is i i whenever i'm judging i feel like because i'm a distiller i'm trying to come at it from a very technical perspective and also from the category that it is being judged under and my understanding of what that category means and how it should be uh, expressed. And that's what I'm trying my hardest. I mean, you can't 100% separate you know, your personal palette and feelings from things, but when I'm judging, that is the feedback I'm giving and that is the space that my mind is at. It is not, I like this, I don't like this. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I understand how this was made. I think it was made very, very well. And I think that it fulfills the expectation for what this spirit is. And if it does all of those things, then it gets a, a good score as nothing to do with whether I like it or not. That's such a good point, Lauren, because I'm, I'm the opposite of you, David. I do not like hopped spirits. I don't like it. They're also well, sometimes the I, I can't say I liked hop spirits. I'll, I'll say I liked hop beers. Let's I say. like hopped beers, but, right. but here's the thing. People somehow, again, they've, they've had their own stuff so many times. They think it's somehow not noticeable. It mm. is so obvious if there's been any level of hops, so they won't disclose it. And it's not in a hopped flight and it's not in the hopped category. And it's just like, no, it was a fully formed beer. So somebody will go back and they'll read the bottle or they'll say, no, it wasn't disclosed at all. And all of us are like, okay. So in just a grouping of bourbons, one of them happens to have like a hopped component to it. It's going to score really poorly because the average consumer grabbing that bourbon off the shelf is probably not going to like it. But as constructive criticism, and I don't like like that hopped category, I might say, had you disclosed this on the label, this is honestly a super balanced, great expression, da, 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 da. And had you done this a little bit differently, it would have fared much better. Certainly. Yeah. I think for whiskey in particular, things that are not necessarily disclosed and it's put in a lineup with, you know, quote unquote, regular <laughs> whiskey, it is immediately noticeable. And it's kind of like, well, would this, would this be fulfilling consumer expectations? Is this is this bourbon if it has these flavors in it? You know what I'm saying? And like, is this the right category for this to be existing? <laughs> and it just oftentimes feels like the answer to that is no. <laughs> but uh, but that is part of the feedback they get. And there is some leeway to move it to a different category. I mean, there's opportunity there. Kind of goes back to who's running the the judging and, and all of that. Um, yeah, we can make like a call and say, Hey, this needs to be put in a bunch of flighted, um, with hopped whiskeys, it will do better. And, and so we can make like an, like kind of executive call. And like you said, that, that really comes down to, you know, transparency. Did they tick that box? Did they want to disclose it? And I, I mean, I can't, I can't think of a good incentive for someone if we keep with the hopped example. I can't mm-hmm. think of a good incentive for someone to hide that because yeah, I you, think they you're gonna think notice you can't it. Can't tell. 
I think yeah. they legit think, oh, they would never notice it had this finish or that it was this, you know, I think they legitimately think you can't tell. And I mean, the same thing in, in a certain way with Pete, like there, maybe there's a tiny little level of PPM where you can't really taste it, or maybe you think it's barrel char, but I mean, honestly, anything over like a five PPM, you're going to know it's peated at some point. A flight of Indian whiskeys and um, they were all non-peated, but some of them had been distilled in stills that did distill peated whiskey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can taste it. You could 100% taste it. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> we've also had whiskeys entered that were distilled in the same pot stills as gin. And there yes. were complex botanicals. And you're like, are you also, and literally in your constructive feedback, you're like, are you also distilling gin in this still? Because I can taste it. You know, and people are like, holy shit. Like I've actually then had follow-up conversations with those distillers later on and saying, hey, oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet you. A couple of years ago, I, I tasted this and da, da, da. Like I'll like wake, make a weird note and they'll be like, oh my God, I could not believe that you guys noticed that because they're tasting it all the time every day. And like, it's not noticeable to them anymore. Absolutely. I, I, tomorrow night, look, as we're recording, tomorrow night is Burns night, of course. So we're all likely going to be drinking some kind of scotch at some point mm-hmm. tomorrow. Uh, and it makes me think of uh, the Briclotti, just the classic Lottie, blue bottle. Yeah. Like it's an unpeated whiskey on his face. But every time I drink it, I swear to God, there's peat in there for me. Very little bit, but just enough. And it's probably because it's on the same equipment. It's around peated whiskeys like when they produce an optimal 180 ppm 140 ppm the other thing david like you said yeah. 5 ppm 5 ppm is talisker that's obviously peated whiskey right. i mean it's like right. you know well yeah but if you're a lafroy drinker you're gonna look at that 5 ppm and be like oh, amateurs i'm a yeah. newport smoker how could i possibly do that? <laughs> oh, well. that that's a different thing i'm gonna alienate way too many listeners on that one <laughs> like um well okay so side note on that is that um so I won't, I'm, I'm going to hold to it. I'm not going to hold you to the worst experiences or anything like that. But I've been asked recently, what was my worst whiskey of last year? I, if you want, I will tell you the name of it offline, but it tasted like chewing menthol cigarettes. That sounds terrible. It was terrible. It was God. And I don't smoke. I've never smoked, but I knew that it was like menthol, cigarette, ash, ugh. Couldn't imagine a cocktail that that was going to hide that one. Um, so yeah, I'll tell you off air if you want, because I don't, no need to tell you now, but all right. So we're going to intentionality. We are moving right along with the creation of this awards panel. And so uh, what do you call it? Like the war, I want to say award ceremony. That's not right. What's the word I'm competition? looking for? Competition. Yeah. There we go. Ceremony eventually. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I need the whiskey to, to loop up my brain a little bit, apparently. So we've got the competition going. So a couple of lightning round questions for you both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get to choose one or the other for this note. You can either give scores or medals. That's a good question. And none of the in-between of like, you can give a medal, but, you know, give a whole write-up of what score that. I'm going to go, I'm going to go medal. I don't think I've been a part of anything that didn't do both. Um, But I want to do scores because uh, I think I want people to know whether or not it barely got it or if it really got it. 
Do you know what I mean? Like I, there's a big difference between, to me, between an 89 that someone argued for and got up to a 90, than somebody that everybody gave it, you know, 99, 99, 99, 99. You know what I mean? That's and there's usually like a double gold or whatever, but like even on the bronzes and the silvers, like I want to know where within that range uh, they, they got to. So I'm going to say scores. It, you know, the thing, Lauren's right. She's right. I'm going to stick with my lazy answer of medals because the way that my kind of like head goes, I, I tend to think about, and I always say this when we're, when we're introducing new judges at different panels is you kind of have to think about, would you be happy to receive this as a gift? Would you give this as a gift? Wait, wait, wait. Would you, what is it? Lauren, remind me. Yeah, so it's like, it's, would you give this as a gift? And then would you buy this? Buy it for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's a, and to me, that's a pretty easy decision. There's so, so to me, it, it just narrows all my stuff. Like, would I buy a bottle of this for myself? So my gold becomes like 96 to a hundred, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like my silver becomes like 90 to 96 and my bronze become, you know, so it just, to me, it just narrows everything up. There are so few things I'm excited to receive as a gift. Um, there are so few things that I buy for people and there are so few things I actually pay money for. So to me, it's just like lazy. And two, it's funny. Like when you're sipping stuff, there's also like, like Lauren was talking about this amazing thing that happens kind of electric, like around the table sometimes where, you know, we spit everything out, but sometimes you don't, I mean, sometimes your body goes, Whoa, that is fucking good. And you're like, Oh my God, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. And I just started drinking this thing. And you don't say anything. Everybody's doing their own thing. And then when you get to the scoring part, everybody's like, uh, that's the best thing we've tasted all day. Right. And everybody's like, yep. Gold medal. I mean, there's just, sometimes you have this moment. Um, Lauren is correct, but I, I'm lazy. So. <laughs> all good. I, I, just, all good. I just like knowing I like the minutia, you know? <laughs> yeah. I can't say which way I'd go on that one. I'd pr- Lauren, I'd probably end up with you on that one. I like the minutia. I like the number, but, hey. um, all right, next one up. And you just alluded to it. Do you spit everything or do you do fewer flights? So so do you do more flights but require that everything be spit so that you can hand like you know not be sloshed by the third one in or do you do fewer flights and allow for the swallow if something is better? The newest line from Impex Beverages has arrived. Hakata whiskey is distilled and matured in Fukuoka, Japan by the Hikari Distillery, using 100% barley with a touch of koji fermentation to add savory umami to the pores. Four expressions are currently available. The 10-year, 12-year, 16-year, and 18-year. All are fully matured in first fill and refill Oloroso and PX sherry casks, then bottled at 42% ABV. Each release speaks to a different palate, and each is truly unique. If you love sherry dominance, go for the 10-year. The 12-year adds reminders of red wine sangria and a stone fruit salad. The 16-year lessens the sherry influence a bit to open juicy fruit and bubble tape gum, jelly donuts, taking your thought to the boldest of the bold Australian Cabernet Sauvignons, and offering a demi-gloss-like mouthfeel. Finally, the 18-year-old returns to those sherry roots, bolstered by the Australian red sensations from the 16-year 
and inky black Tempranillo wine feelings, imparting black cherry, golden raisins, and dark honey in Lady Grey tea. Each of these expressions brings a different dimension to the sherry, and there is truly one for every palate. Go to impexbev.com slash Hakata, that's H-A-K-A-T-A, to find out more, and grab a bottle at your favorite premium whiskey shop today. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. Hey, we're professionals. I'm going to answer a different question than you asked. No, it's fine. <laughs> what I, it was, um, I started off my judging career doing almost exclusively gin, like a lot of gin. I love gin. As someone who is very passionate gin, this is a difficult thing for me to admit. But I moved over into doing whiskey and bourbon, <clears throat> and I found that I swallow for bourbon and I spit for gin which I thought was so bizarre. I didn't, I didn't quite, I couldn't quite think about why. I mean, I'm taking very small sips. You know, I'm not like, you know, taking a full mouthful and like squishing it around necessarily. Um, But it was really interesting to me that that just kind of happened naturally. And um, I think, I think the reason why is because there tends to be more palate structure for whiskey. And so I want to leave it in my mouth longer typically I mean unless there's like an incredible amount of essential oil composition in the gin and it's like super viscous or whatever but I think I I really want to feel the breadth of the whiskey and with gin um, I'm tasting it I'm getting the you know botanical profile kind of the balance between uh, the alcohol and water and things like that and then that's that's what that's what I need in order to kind of make a, a call on it so I don't, uh, I kind of do both. <laughs> I think, I think everybody does. I think too, a very important component of whiskey is finish. We talk about that all the time and it is a lot often consumed neat, consumed on the rocks, like consumed with water. So that's really, really important. You just have to kind of like make that decision for yourself. And very often if it's, if it's great, your body kind of just does that for you. I think too, it is where you determine the difference between a 90 and a 95. Mm-hmm. there's a kind of gut reaction to it. That's like, Oh, Holy shit. You know? And so you're very careful the whole day, you know, you might do 30 or 40 or 50 or, you know, whatever, however many spirits um, you're very careful, you know? So there are a lot of these things that can actually honestly just be determined on nose. Mm-hmm. There are lots and lots of things that like, you don't even really need to taste that. You're just like, okay, I kind of know where this sits. I kind of get it, you know, and then mouthfeel kind of confirms it. And then you're just like, Boop, okay, straight back out, like nothing. Um, the ones that, that have some depth and the ones where, you know, there's just whiskeys that you want to swallow a little bit of everything in the entire round, because then you are like, oh, okay. The thing that's kind of like the deal breaker for me here is the finish, the length of the finish, like whatever that is. So we're professionals. I mean, too, Lauren knows this. You'll get to an end of a round and go, oh my God, I can't believe how good this was. Or, oh my God, I can't believe how odd this was or different this was or bad this was. And then we hang on to it the round finishes and then we all go running all over the room and go, Oh my God, you have to taste this. Oh my God. Tell me what you think of this. Do you remember Lauren? Was it a vodka that was salsa? 
Oh yeah, it was amazing. It was probably oh, yeah. the- it was the best thing in the entire judging. <laughs> Honestly, David, it was like t- dipping a good tortilla chip in great salsa. Chewing yeah. it up and swallowing. It had texture. Cilantro, uh, acidity from tomatoes, and like corn. It had it all. It was, all of it. it was gorgeous. So the vodka panel, we're never jealous of the vodka panel. Somebody on the vodka panel, and then everybody's like, oh my God, you know, da, da. so then everybody was like, okay, we are we crazy? So a bunch of us had it put in front of us right before lunch, and they brought out like a bowl. It was full of tortilla chips, but they put a napkin over it so we couldn't see it. And they didn't tell us what the vodka was supposed to be. They said, flavored vodka, we need you guys to be the deciding panel. And we all are like nosing it going, I'm getting cumin, I'm getting cilantro, I'm getting corn, I'm getting black beans, I'm getting tomatoes, I'm getting this. We're like, what is this? And then you taste it. And it wasn't like, this would be great in the Bloody Mary. It was like, it tastes like salsa. And then they uncovered the bowl of chips and we were all just like, yes, this is so, you know, it was amazing. I think it was a white whiskey. I think it was a- I think you're right, you're right. It was salsa flavored white whiskey. And that's where the corn flavor was coming from with like the actual base of it yeah it was yeah. like a distiller we out of table. yeah 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 it was a distiller out of virginia and it was fabulous oh it was so good it was amazing yeah, I, I, mean, I gotta look that up just to find them because that, i'll that's... find it i'll send it to you it was so much fun yeah awesome. yeah um, like on the other flip though i remember someone coming up and giving me a glass of something like well you have to try this and so i took a big sip of it thinking that it was going to be delicious but it was actually a liqueur that has that numbing. Uh, it's like beasting out of uh, South America mm. and it numbs your entire mouth. And I was like drooling afterwards because my whole mouth was totally numb for about 30 minutes. And I was like, why would you do that to me? But That's now weird. I always make people taste that stuff because it's such an interesting sensation. But you have to be careful with how much you put into your mouth for sure. What a, what a selling point. Do you want to be drooling while you drink this? Like, mm-hmm. ooh, I think ooh. the idea is that it numbs the sensation of alcohol so that you can drink more. I, I would guess that's part that's of the insanity. selling. I, wow. I guess, but like when I get the numbing, I usually think of like a Szechuan peppercorn where it's just sure. so, you know, you get that specific thing yeah. and it goes, it goes away, yeah. but, but it's, it fits. But the idea that you're just like paralyzing your mouth in a way, I don't, know. I don't get it. I mean, I might be exaggerating, but it was like couldn't taste I mean, anything, couldn't do anything. If you went, if you went right to like I was drooling, I don't think you're exaggerating that much. I'm <laughs> just guessing here. Uh, it was a lot. It was a lot. So it is funny. Yeah, we're all. Do you remember Lauren? The one that blew me away at um in New Orleans was that coconut gin. Yes, oh, it blew me away. I absolutely fought really gorgeous. hard for that. I fought so hard for it because like uh single botanical gins like that um you know what what's out there not always great you know but when one is done right incredible and this one was just like the perfect coconut it wasn't too sweet it wasn't too thick it was just like opening up a fresh coconut and drinking the water right out of it it was so gorgeous what are you gonna do with it i don't know but when all of us tasted it we're like yeah that is fucking good like doesn't matter but we what are you gonna do one. with it what are you gonna do with it it's not that's not part of the question no so. it's yeah, not I, it's you not. know there's another side of me now that's like well that's your job bartender like yeah <laughs> that, well that's where the bartender comes in sure yeah exactly i was like believe this is so good i feel like if a spirit is so good regardless of what it is 
then people can figure out something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Next lightning round question. We've got two more for you. First one, what glass are you using? I knew that was coming. Tulip. It's, it's a tulip. Okay. But Lauren, with or yeah. without watch glass. I love a good watch glass because I just like the, the it's like running a, uh, a coin across your fingers. If you know what mm-hmm. you're doing in terms of yep. just like flipping it off and off, then first of all, it looks really cool. And mm-hmm. uh, second of all, I do like a, I do like a watch glass. It's I'm, I'm a, it's tulip. Cause you gotta be able to keep your hands off of it and the temperature, you know, consistent, like a Glencairn glass is fine. I mean, we obviously don't want to be drinking out of red solo cups or anything straight sided or anything crazy like that. Um, you know, so anything with that kind of classic shape and wine glasses are good. If you were doing something at home, you know, anything like that is fine. But like the, just a two, the, the classic nosing glass that they've used in the entire spirits industry for hundreds of years is probably the right one for a reason. It is funny watch glasses. It's like, I don't use them day to day. I don't have any of them at home. I have to get used to it again. And I'm with you, Lauren. I think it looks so fucking cool. So I get there and I'm like, practice, practice, practice. Cause you have to be able to go think and then hold it on the side of the glass, like while mm-hmm. you're tasting and then floop, and then they put it back on. Yeah. Lauren's good at it all the time. Cause she does it all the time, but like, <laughs> I have to practice before I get there. And two, they are Fallen on the floor. They are breaking. They are, yeah, it's a mess, but they are yeah. wonderful. I like I'm picking on the just because they're easier to pick up. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I just they're just easier to to pick up. But well, and you're putting like there's flight numbers, there's spirit, you yeah. know, numbers and all that kind of stuff are fine. Mm-hmm. I will say too, I I there are glasses that are very good for nosing, but are horrible for tasting. Mm-hmm. And both of them are super important. So it's like, I can't drink out of something shaped like a jack-o'-lantern. Yeah. It's a great nosing glass, but like, can't drink out of it. If I can't I drink use, out of it, what's the point? I use those glasses for making cuts. So I just, uh, because, you know, you mentioned that like a significant portion of what we're doing is on the nose and it's very similar for when you're making cuts off the sill. So I'll pull samples off the sill with like, I mean, neat glasses, right? And, uh, but there, it's almost impossible to drink out of those. So I usually just stick a finger in and, you know, taste it like that on my tongue. All right. <laughs> and the, so the tulip glass, but also stemmed tulip glass or stemmed. Yes bulb mm-hmm. shape in some way. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Next one. And this is, this question comes out of a product that um, will be an inside joke to some where they curated the water for each sample, which drove me nuts. But what kind of water are you using to either clean your palate or proof down? It's or are you question. not, or are you not using that, that's an answer too. It, I mean, it depends on where the judging is. Um, it depends on what the, you know, the city, you know, like the available water is. Um, I think most of the time we're using deionized water, you know, um, or RO water, you know, something that someone would proudly use for process dilution water. But like at home, we have great water in Chicago. So I should be using the water that I drink every single day. That's my constant. So, you know, like, it's like, I should travel with my own water. I would say same for New York. Um, sorry, Lauren, I, I don't like California water, but that's me. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, I don't either. No. Okay. <laughs> 
I I would say probably I mean it's RO water just for consistency's sake. I, I just would probably do that. I I don't really use a lot of water for dilution when I'm judging. Um, I rarely do. Um, but for drinking, probably still you just don't want to. I mean, we've been to judging where we're not allowed to have salt. We're not allowed to have soap. I mean, like we are not allowed to have soap, but it gives like unscented soap. No, uh, they give it to us when we they, check in. They yeah. like slap a bar of soap in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> so like there are some really interesting you know things uh to to help make sure that your palate stays focused like that so we've had some bad lunches we've had some judgings <laughs> where they're like you cannot have salt sugar garlic butter and they're mustard. like mu- like mustard would be way too flavorful <laughs> you know and you're like oh my god lunch was terrible i'm so hungry i've been judging spirits for four hours yeah. i'm absolutely starving it's also interesting it's like i remember at a few of them they've debated about having coffee available in the morning and mm-hmm. it's like okay i get that coffee is a very strong flavor i understand that but i drink it every morning so that you're is gonna feel weird palate. if you don't have it yeah oh, you don't want to let like the rage be out if they don't get their caffeine like it's a balance between keeping people like in check and uh, the ability to taste (laughs) yeah I will say too these panels it is I mean not only I get like it is funny it's Lauren I see Lauren and I'm like "Ah!" like I haven't (laughs) seen you in forever I mean it's like for a lot of us, it's like summer camp. You know, we don't get to be around like this group of people and our peers. And, and you know, I think Lauren, to your original point, talk about what's going on in the industry, like what's new, what's exciting, da, da, da. and then actually be so privileged as to like have people trust putting their spirits in our hands and trusting, you know, our experience and really like putting, you know, it's like a kid, you know, like putting a kid out there to be judged. Like that's a really brave, um, vulnerable position to put yourself in. Yeah. And we don't take it lightly. And we really, it's like, it's so humbling. And then like, we, it's crazy. We're such nerds. We just sit around the fireplace at the end of the night, talking about all these beautiful things that we tasted like all day long, you know, and we don't get to see it. It's all like, it, it is very blind. It's like very kept, you know, behind closed doors, but at the very, very end, you know, kind of signed off to secrecy, we get to see it. And it is so unbelievable to go back there and see these things and celebrate. I just thought like goosebumps for a second, like to celebrate your peers and go, oh my gosh, I am so excited for this person to see this. You know, it's it's um, truly a great blessing to be part of. Absolutely. I'm so thankful and so grateful to um, have been included. I absolutely take it very seriously <laughs> when, uh, when I'm judging because I'm on the other side. You know, and I'm, I, I've gotten feedback back, you know, both good and bad. And um, I know how much I value that and constructive criticism, um, also praise, just, you know, nudge, nudge. Uh, but, uh, but I just, I, I feel so inspired. Every time I go to a judging and I'm with other people who are just as excited and just as passionate and just as um, you know, wrapped up and involved in our world, I find it so inspiring and exciting and I feel re-energized. You know, oftentimes there is a good amount of repetition with distillation going through the motions. There is a very uh, structured, like regimented side to it. And so I feel like this other side, it gives me space for creativity and growth and learning and uh, and I just, I can't, I can't say how much I value it enough. I think 
for me, that's a perfect way to, to end it right there with, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's an honor just to be here, hearing you both talk about it and seeing the passion come out from both of you and the excitement, Monique, you getting the goosebumps, Lauren, you feeling the passion of like, this is out of the norm for me. Uh, and as, as someone who's, I mean, we've all been at that place where we look at a liquor store shelf and we're like, I have no idea what any of these labels mean, what any of these bottles mean or anything, but I'm going to go with the score or what I know or something. But now we're also all three of us at a point where we can go there and look at, all right, this score got this from this competition or this from that, you know, and really deep dive. So for everyone who's at the beginning of their journey and where we are and even more advanced, certainly than I am, I think it's a great conversation about just understanding what goes into judging, what it's like from a judge's perspective. Um, again, thank you both so much for coming on to talk about this. It was a lot of fun. I hope you both had as much fun as I did on this. So with that, we'll close out for tonight. Hang on with me just for a minute. Uh, thank Thanks, you for David. Thank you for having us. It's been fun yeah, to get to you. see Lauren sooner than I would. I probably I won't see her again until <laughs> I'll see you in April at ADI, if not sooner. I feel like David, I feel like we should grab, like we should find a way to get you to like do a live podcast from one of the judgings. I am. Okay. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, (laughs) I I have an ask out, so we'll talk about that a little more. Uh, But again, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening to the Whiskering podcast. uh, And we'll see you next week. Hey folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeymywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.